Hi, and welcome to the Unconventionalist Podcast. My name is Mark DeRoost, and this is the place to be if you're curious to explore the question of what it really means to live a purposeful life. Now, before we dive into today's amazing guest, I want to share with you some special announcements. The first one is that on the 6th of March, I will be hosting Chris Gillibo, the one and only New York Times bestseller, the man behind World Domination Summit, who wrote four amazing books, will be coming over to London and gracing us with his presence, St. John at Hackney. And if you want to get your tickets, it's at worldescapeday.com. Click on London. And when you check out, make sure to use the code UNCONVENTIONAL, all in capital letters. It'll give you 20% discount. And I hope I'll see you there. If you want to find out about all the other live events that we've got lined up for the coming months, head over at marklaroos.com and click on the live events tab at the top. We've got some super exciting events, and most of them are still up for grabs, at least at the time of recording this podcast. So go over there and come and see me soon. Now, I want to give you a quick update as well as we go to my TEDx talk that is coming up on the 22nd of April. Now, I want to give a whole episode around this topic in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. But until there, I just want to share that what's been really interesting about this process is that actually it's been something that's taken a lot of headspace to try and figure out what am I going to say exactly? How am I going to say it? How am I going to show it's going to have the impact? How do I make sure I give value to the audience, you know, be of service to others and not make it about me and remove all the stories about me? And it's just been like this ongoing process of back and forth. And this weekend, my girlfriend and I went off and spent some time together, had a romantic getaway. And what that actually brought to me was some massive headspace and clarity. Spending some time in the countryside, having long walks, taking a bit of fresh air, being back in the fields, and actually disconnected totally from any digital device for three days was amazing. I wasn't online, no laptops, no phones, no internet, nothing. Just reading and writing. That's all I did and we did over three days. And it's just been a huge kind of clarity that I've come back really excited and and I've just started drafting the first draft actually of the speech which I'm going to have to divide by two because it's way too long at the moment. But I've got a lot of my structure down now. So that's very exciting. And I'm going to be um, giving a few talks in the runner-up to my TEDx talk. So if you want to find out where those are going to be, make sure to go over on live events at marklaroos.com. Now, today's guest is a rather legendary guest. Now, when it comes down to coming up with excuses as to why we don't have a great career, it appears that we are resourceful and creative beyond measure. So much so that self-confessed, career-obsessed Larry Smith, a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo in Canada, decided to drop some seriously funny truth bombs in his 2011 TEDx talk, Why You Will Fail to Have a Great Career. The result? A whooping 5.5 million views on TED.com and counting. In his hilarious, provocative, cringe, but oh-so-true talk, Larry points out the absurd excuses people invent when they fail to pursue their passions, including wanting to be a good person. He's a powerful storyteller and a well-known advocate for youth leadership who's taught 10% of the Waterloo alumni to date. But what Larry really loves is coaching his students to find the careers that they will truly love. Now, today you're going to learn a whole bunch of amazing resources. You can understand why his TED talk actually went viral. You can learn about why it's so important to figure out what you want and go and do it and to stop making up excuses and actually what you can do to overcome some of those barriers, some of those inner critiques and some of those challenges that you've set before yourself. Now, he's got a new book, No Fears, No Excuses, What You Need to Do to Have a Great Career. It's out now. 
published Random House Penguins in the UK and it's available across all reputable bookstores and online. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you share it with your friends and go over on iTunes and subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review while you're at it. It helps tremendously the show to have a bigger impact. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the one and only Larry Smith. Larry, welcome on the show. It's so exciting to have you. I know that so many people are excited to get your thoughts on various topics. Uh, But first of all, I just want to say a warm welcome to the Unconventionalists. My pleasure to be here, Mark. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those, I think, you know, I'm on a mission of interviewing a whole bunch of people, as you know, and I've, I've targeted a few uh, TED speakers or TEDx speakers. Um, and your talk must be one of those things that people keep on bringing up to you over and over again, I'm guessing, in conversations. Uh, it's had 5.4 million views to date. And the title was Why You Will Fail to Have a Great Career. And you told me you're obsessed with career. Yes, I, I, I certainly am. And uh, what is remarkable to me, since that was actually uh, posted in the spring of 2012, I receive email on an almost daily basis, just based on people who've seen the TED video wow. and want to ask more questions. So it's still being viewed, which is like for a video, quite quite remarkable. Sure. Um, I must admit, when I was asked to do the TED Talk, that was the first TED Talk that had been arranged at the University of Waterloo, and I was asked to uh, uh, present at it. And uh, so that was fine, and I, you know, you have a limited number of time, but limited number of minutes, which you have to say sure. something useful or try to. <laughs> and and I just decided that I was going to take every single excuse students have inflicted on me in my career dialogues <laughs> with them for decades, and just download them all. Yeah. Uh, and 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 by while the video has a few pieces for comic effect, the truth of the, the truth of the matter is. Uh, it's legit. All those are real excuses. Yeah. I think that's where the views came from. Sure. People recognize that that wasn't made up to be funny. Those are real excuses that real people constantly make. Yeah. And and um, you may recall there's a little small segment in the video about a magician. Well, naturally, of course, <laughs> even though that I made up just for demonstrating sure. the point. But we. Um, yeah. But I got, I got emails from magicians telling me that I was <laughs> bang on with respect to my description of the dialogue they had with their parents yeah. while trying to trying <laughs> to be magicians. Yeah, but, it, was re- so, it was remarkable. So, and I, and I want to dive a, a little bit deeper into into the process of that talk. But before that, I'm just curious: how does a professor of economics fall upon a, a passion for career and for helping people find their, their the careers that they love? Well, for me, it's very simple. I have a very uh, broad view of, um, of economics. It is a primary behavioral science. Uh, I and Adam Smith and John Maynard Keynes, we stand. Well, we stand shoulder line. to shoulder. I'm, yeah. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not being funny. I have yeah. a fo- photograph of Professor Keynes in my yeah. office, and I actually have a wire service uh, photograph of uh, Lord Keynes shortly before he died with wow. Lord Halifax. Lord Halifax, it's framed on my uh, it's framed on my wall. I can show you. I'm not. <laughs> no, I believe. I believe. Yeah. Making it up for effect. And, my, my, uh, my campus at the university was Keynes. That was the that was my college. Well, it was it was at, at its date stamped 1945. Mm. Was at uh, the conclusion of the war, and he was at a conference with respect to the post-war uh, world. I'm a Keynesian economist. Well, as soon as you are that, and uh, of course we are all in some ways affected by Adam Smith. 
but I'm a master's work at Adam Smith. Um, I'm a behavioral economist, which means you look at the, a human behavior. Uh, one of the things that has always interested me to the labor markets. Sure. Uh, and I, I teach applied economics to begin with. So when I begin with my classes, we begin with, I was on the operating on the assumption my students have no reason to want to do economics, that I need to help them understand <laughs> why it's useful. Yeah. And uh, including those who are compelled to take it because their programs require sure. it. And I begin by discussing the labor markets because it is the one thing the student is interested in. Mm. They may have no interest in learning anything, uh, but they're at a university to get a job. So I say, okay, <laughs> are you going to get a job? And I have their attention immediately. Now, that is my natural specialization. Yeah. And I'm a behavioral economist. How could I not get involved in career? And then sure. on, top of, on top of all of that, Mark, um, I get a lot of student traffic and they start asking me these questions. So yeah. I just, I'm a professor, so I'm paid to answer questions and I proceeded to do so. There's also one other dynamic at the University of Waterloo which makes my students' career obsessed and therefore obviously affects me. And that is we have the world's largest cooperative education program. Mm. So in, in this every every calendar year, we, we are a tri-semestered school, so we, we don't have summer holidays. Okay. We go we go th- uh, four months on, four, four, four. Um, and so we teach straight through the year, which means our students alternate between an academic term and a work term. And it's important to distinguish this as not the U.S. version of internships. These are real jobs. They're mm. professionally related, and the students are actually paid. Uh, this means that a student, uh, some of our youngest students are 17, which means six oh, wow. weeks af- okay. after they arrive at the University of Waterloo, uh, they put themselves in a suit or dress. That may be the first time they've done that in their life, presumably one or the other. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, sit in a real employment interview for professional work, not for right. working at, at fast food restaurant. Sure. And uh, by December, sorry, by January, like the next January, they're out in the workplace. This means that 17-year-old may have to move to another city, find another place to live, uh, and cope. The, and that's, and that's 20,000. We place 20,000 in the calendar year, uh, and more than 5,000 employers hmm. arrive, arrive on our campus. Uh, which means our students are very strongly career-oriented because they've got to get through these interviews. They have to choose. They have to choose who they want to be interviewed by. Um, they they sit through a whole series of interviews. Then uh, shortly they get ranked as employers. There's a huge matching service here. It's wow. elaborate bureaucracy to make this happen. Necessary, of course, um, because we have like right now because this is interview season at Waterloo. Um, there are thousands of our students being interviewed this today. Uh, hmm. They're being interviewed in person by Skype, by other full variety of other yeah. other uh, um. means. Sometimes by even by the old phone. So it is natural that since they may be only one academic term in, they immediately have a career question because they have to actually sure. decide. They can't. They can't defer it to graduation. So <laughs> yeah, that's a good so point. Like, what, what, what am I going to become once I once I finish graduate? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Though. And and sometimes, what am I supposed to do in the workplace? How am I supposed to? You know, what job should I choose next? Yeah. Why am I getting no interviews? And all my classmates are getting interviews, yeah. right? And what advice uh, do you we, give them then? What, what advice? Oh, well, do you well, give? It, it will be purely situational, depending upon sure. the circumstance of the students, the different guidance for different students. So one advantage I have, because I'm still alive, (laughs) is that I can refer them to strategies that worked for previous students. 
And that, that's invaluable, right? Because I can say, look, if you're applying to Microsoft, these are the things you need to do, or these are the things you need to be cautious about. If you're applying to Facebook, these are the things you need to do. Just to give you a flavor for the peculiarities of my campus, uh, some, of my some of my former students are the first employees of uh, Microsoft, Google, mm -hmm. uh, Qualcomm, Facebook, Twitter, you name, you name Apple. Yeah. They, they've been there, um, which means they've had a range of industrial experience, which is peculiar for someone 20. Like a 20-year-old at Waterloo could have worked for Facebook and Microsoft and maybe one other company. Hmm. And that's all in one little, in, yeah. in one uh, young person's head. And they're trying to make sense of all this. Now, that means that their questions are quite sophisticated. Like, surprisingly sophisticated for being 20. Sure. But that's because they've been thrown into these environments. So in some ways, Waterloo is the perfect place to either be career obsessed or to become <laughs> career obsessed. <laughs> and do you find that, so, uh, that, 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 I'm sorry, but did you find that the students who've gone through these experiences, does that put them off the corporate world? Or does that actually get, that, get them more excited about the idea of, okay, these are like different opportunities and I didn't realize that these were departments that existed in these companies and now I've got like a broader horizon? Well, the answer is yes and yes. It, it is, <laughs> well, it, no, it's such a rich experience. Some students decide they're in the wrong program entirely and they do not want to do this work. Mm. That's useful to learn that early rather than late. Sure. It means they can start switching programs. Sure. Other students decide this is their calling. They're, mm. they're, they're, they're 18 and they know their home. This is what they want to do. Their passion and their job is aligned. For others, they're exploring. They're not sure what they're interested in. So then take a series of different jobs looking for something that may mm. that may grab them. Uh, it is that the benefits to the individual depend entirely on where they are sure. in their in their journey to um, a career. But at the very least, Mark, they have more information sooner and it's intimate because it's not about it's one thing to read about a workplace. It's one thing to read about yeah. Apple or Facebook oh, yeah, or, yeah. or IBM for example. For 100%. example. But when you're actually in the middle of working in a merchant bank in Manhattan, all of this stuff is <laughs> well. I I did. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that because at my university there were no. It was in one, on my program there was no kind of internship uh, ability. So I actually created. I actually wanted to find out what it would be like to work in an advertising agency. And through a contact, I managed to get this two months internship. It was it was paid minimum wage, but it was internship in this ad agency. And I love what you're saying because. While I was doing that agency, I was like, okay, I don't think I want to work in ad agencies now. And I, But I knew that in my third year, going into my final year, and I didn't have to wait until I graduated, go through the whole training processes and recruitment that's to figure that out. And that saved you a huge amount of time. Sure, yeah. And, and you mentioned the word calling. Some of them find their calling. Um, do you think there is a certain do you think we can find your calling at any age or yes yeah do you think that you, at, at 12 you can find it the same way you can find it at 50 or 80 or yes yeah yes um, i found i found mine before i found mine in grade school huh okay so that's that's you know and so under four under 14. yeah and how, how, how did it come across for you then how did you how did it happen Oh, very simple. I'm attending elementary school because I'm compelled to. You know, the law says you got to go. <laughs> um, otherwise, otherwise, I might not have. Um, and, um, of course, there's teachers. I concluded they were really bad, and I could do it better. 
Yeah. I was, a, I was an obnoxious little kid. <laughs> but the truth is, from the very first moment, mm. the whole idea of teaching and trying to communicate ideas mm. to a group of people, uh, little Larry thought that was fascinating mm. and was so surprised. I'm being honest, by the way. Yeah, I'm yeah. not trying to be funny at all. Sure, sure. And I remember being surprised at how badly they taught. Yeah. Like, I arrived interested in subjects. Like, I was a curious kid. So at some level, I should have been the ideal student, you know, curious about lots of stuff. <laughs> but many of my classmates were also curious it, to start with, and school was killing their curiosity. Right. Taking a subject that should have been interesting, and the teacher's just reading it to you, and like, and what you, we're reading was boring, and mm. uh, jobs were boring, and we've learned to memorize stuff for no apparent but no apparent like I understand memorize how to spell words okay I thought that was useful I, <laughs> I hated it I hated it but I was smart enough to tell me okay I want to read so you know yeah. got a soldier on but I'm not talking about that I'm talking about other lists of things yeah. like why why would I mem uh, for example why would I memorize the um, a list of the names of uh, the monarchs of Canada like why would I need that memorized in my head I can look it up if I want to know who King George the X was. True, but but you, do you know what I mean? So so yeah. I can I concluded that I I, w I was going to teach because I could do it better. Yeah, now, I must admit that is obnoxious. But <laughs> never, mind. never mind. I've now taught ten percent of the alumni of University of Waterloo, yeah. so I must enjoy it. And well, I'm also a farm farm. Well, just maybe one other yeah. thing. I'm also a farm kid, and I discovered my second passion, which is technology. Mm. And when you're a farm kid you encounter machinery yeah and they fascinated me like far, and and of course as a kid i watched new machinery being brought on the farm i watched the impact of that machinery on my family's direct welfare you know sure. more could be grown with the machinery we had with less back-breaking work um so i was hooked on technology i was hooked on teaching oh and the last thing i sit at the dinner table and my family's complaining about the price of hogs in chicago <laughs> And I've been introduced to the marketplace. Okay, that, uh, and I and I'm not a teenager yet. Yeah. Um, so you you spoke to Olivier. Olivier, if you listen to this, uh, yeah. shout out to Olivier who, who introduced us. And I was listening to the interview, and it was really interesting because Olivier and I had a very similar experience. So I grew up in France, and I had a horrific experience uh, with my teachers. I'm dyslexic. Had I been born 10 years later, I would have been severely medicated, probably on ADHD and so forth. I just think I was creative and um, imaginative. And so I had a really tough time. And there's a specific moment where, where, where what you said reminded me of this. I was, my history teacher was just so sour and just so mean. And at one point I asked him in the middle of the class, I was like, I was like sir, why are you so mean? Like, why are you so angry? Why would you come and teach this if you're just so angry? And he said, um, I want to say almost verbatim, but he said something on the lines of, well, you know, I used to be passionate about history and then I, I went to you know university, I studied university and then I came here and then I met you guys and then I taught you. And do you know what it feels like to teach something you're passionate about to people who don't care, but it ruins you. So you try and take this seat and you try and like, and I just remember that I was, I was 16. I don't know how old I was, but I just remember going, that surely can't be right. That surely, you know, there's something wrong with this picture. There's definitely, there's definitely something wrong with yeah. that picture. For sure. And, and how and do you, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and it, his was, it was his job yeah. to show you why he was passionate about history. So clearly on that point, he failed as a teacher. Sure. There's, there's a quote I heard you say in an interview, which really resonated with me, which is, what is more interesting than nurturing talent? 
I'm damned if I know. If you could tell me. <laughs> so, tell us what, so tell us what you mean by nurturing talent. Well, I, I really sort of just mean what it sounds like it means. Um, somebody comes into my life and they're young and they have all this potential. And I know from experience how many different ways that potential can be deflected. Mm. Well, it, A, it can be destroyed. Yeah. It can also be deflected. As an economist, I'm afflicted with a very basic economic principle taught all over the world called opportunity cost. It's a simple idea. You should be doing the best use of your time, not something useful. So against anything you're doing, you always look at what alternatives are available. And unless you're doing the best possible thing, hmm. you're actually making an irrational decision. So it is not, you know, would the student get a job? Would he, he or she get the job best suited to their talent? That's different from did they get employed? Hmm. And, and I started noticing how much of the world, including the students themselves, were satis being satisfied with the least they could have hmm. rather than the most they could have. Now, that's a loss. It's a loss to them and it's a loss to society. And I don't care if that sounds like a motherhood statement. I actually believe that. Hmm. And so it seemed so wonderful to try to help somebody achieve their potential to get make the best possible use of their talent and not just do something good do something that is absolutely the limit of what they can do and and from my point of view since i get them young relatively um you can you can alter someone's life yeah for the better a hundred percent um and and, and yeah. then they tell me this later yeah like a decade later they'll tell me you know we had that conversation, and I would never be here without it. Hmm. Now, that scares me a bit, but on the other hand, keeps me here. Yeah, I was about to say, and that's, it's, it's a beautiful gift that you can give, you know, the guides. I think it's Sir Ken Robinson, when you read his book, The Element, he talks about this, about people who, throughout their life, at one point maybe met someone or discovered something that helped them on their path to figure out what, you know, they wanted to do. Have you, have you noticed, so I'm interested since you've got decades of experience of seeing students come through 10% of the graduates of, of Waterloo University have you, have you seen a pattern that derails people where you've seen people actually there's a common reason that maybe that's a mistake or the excuse that you say and what actually have you seen as a pattern for those who've actually gone off and done things and really fulfilled their potential and, and their talent well I must admit I've thought about that a lot hmm. uh, because again, I have to think about that when trying to provide guidance when someone appears here at my doorstep. Because uh, I take a 50-year time horizon. Like if I'm giving someone guidance, hmm. I'm giving guidance on the basis that it's going to play out over half a century. And I better and I better not say anything that I don't believe will be true for 50 years. Yeah. Otherwise, Larry should keep his mouth shut. <laughs> uh, well, no, I like either say something you have confidence in, you don't speculate with other people's lives. Hmm. You just well, you shouldn't anyway. Um, so, so in terms of over the years, well, for one thing, a lot of people are ask me. I mean, have I seen the change in the students? They usually mean for the worse. They don't mean for the better. Mm -hmm. They are not asked. They're not assuming they're better prepared or better anything. Uh, they're simply asking me if they have changed. And the answer is not in any substantive way. Um, they've gained a few things and lost a few other things. <laughs> 
that their communication skills were never good. They're probably a little worse now <laughs> um, since they spend too much time texting and not enough time. What's that other word, Mark? Talking. Um, so their talking skills often somewhat worse. But it's it's marginal. It's still not a big deal. They were never very good at it. So now they're slightly less good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in every other other attribute, they're as prepared as they ever were. They're as keen as they ever were. There was all this you know generational you know X and millennials. Well, I don't know. I, I do not see an impact. Yeah. Will the ones making mistakes make the same mistakes decade after decade? And the guys uh, who get it right get it right using the same basic tools the ones who get it right have a passion and a plan mm. the ones who don't have neither a passion nor a plan so let's, let's talk about passion then this is this is a topic that i find um both fascinating and i think can be controversial at times and I'll explain to you why well, how i feel about this but for you what's the what how do you define passion when someone says i don't know what my passion is larry how do i find what my passion is What's it? Well, there's two questions. What is what yeah. is it, and how, how to true. find? Well, the the first question is you know the first answer um, is you know, and and again I began that seems so obvious to me. Uh, if you're passionately interested in something, you would do it whether you are paid or not. I don't know. That's a very clear operational test. Um, and then sort of allied to that is would you do it if you weren't paid? And it's the lottery test. Would you keep doing this if you won mm. the lottery? If the answer is yes, must be a passion. And especially if, as a sort of corollary to that question, not only would I keep doing it independent of pay, I'm doing it like intensively. So it's not a hobby I do occasionally on the mm. weekend because I like it. This is something I probably couldn't stop myself from doing even if I tried. Hmm. Like, truth be told, I don't know how I could stop myself from teaching until I'm dead. If if a student stops me in the corridor to ask a casual question, Larry sees this as a teaching moment <laughs> and will give him a 15-minute answer. <laughs> um, to their credit, they usually stand there not looking too <laughs> they just asked the time and you went off on a tantrum around, around passion and career. <laughs> I, I might well. I yeah. might well. I uh, might well indeed. But so it just seems to me that your behavior will dictate that you have your passion. That is to say, you can't stop thinking about it. You can't stop yourself from doing it. Hmm. Uh, you would do it even if you weren't paid. I don't know. That seems fairly clear to me. Hmm. It, it moves, removes it from a hobby. I'm happy for people to have hobbies. You should have a multifaceted life and not be interested in only one thing. I actually have other interests, which are just hobby things, things sure. I like to do. Make me feel. I like gardening. For I'm not good at it, but I don't care. <laughs> I did dig it in the dirt, dirt, and trying to plant things. Yeah, um, uh, suits me. But it's not a passion, even remotely. Yet I know passionate gardeners who True. who it, 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 even. I mean, here of course it's like I don't know. Well, it's about five or six degrees below below zero Celsius, which means it's cold as all get out, and, and there are people planting their gardens right now. <laughs> no, no, they're, they're either planting their garden, tending the garden, or planting the garden. Wow. In this country, you, just, you can't tend your garden all year, otherwise sure. nothing can tend. Yeah. Um, now, that's a passion not for me. Like For me, it's just not, like, I like to make things grow. I like trees. I plant trees, yeah. uh, for instance. Um, so it seems to me there's a clear difference between you're not interested at all. I do it only for money, doing uh, doing something as a hobby and doing something as a passion. I am startled, and I say this plainly to you, when my when a faculty member uh, tells me 
uh, how he's counting down the days where he never has to teach again. <laughs> and he's yeah. your history teacher you're referring yeah. to. Yeah, my mum my was a teacher for 34 years. Um, and, 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 I, and I can confirm at least what, from what her side, what she said about students are the same. She said they're the same. Yes, things change, you know, the technology change, but they're the same. And so, so if someone says, okay, but I don't really know what I'm obsessed with, I heard you once mentioned something about interests, like maybe you've got 20 interests and, and follow those interests and maybe one of, out of those, one of those interests will turn into a passion. Is that, is that something? Yeah, that, yeah. Well, if you don't know what your passion is, well, fine, start with the interesting stuff. Yeah. Pay it, look at a lot of things because you may be interested in stuff you don't even know about because you never encountered it. Mm. Well, encounter more, read more, talk more, go out more, go to places more, just be out and about. Yeah. engage in your world find as many different interests as you have but mind you those are still interests not passions sure There's and then once once you found the interest well then you have to start taking the next steps so my, my brother's an economist at the OECD um, oh very very yeah. good choice and uh, well yeah and and here's here's an interesting here's an interesting question I want I want to ask you which is so for my dad and my, and my brother for them, a job is a job. And it's like you do a job and then on the side you get to, you know, play music or do whatever it is that you're passionate about. But, you know, you shouldn't obsess about, you know, is your, is your, is your job meaningful? And I, I come from this generation, you know, Peter Pan generation, Y generation. means like we got to find purpose and meaning in everything we do. Um, do you think that everyone, sh you know, everyone should be pursuing meaningful, purposeful work? Or do you think there's a room for people who are satisfied with just ordinary work? Well, that's what most people are doing, ordinary work. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that's your brother. <laughs> uh, no, I am, actually. Well, I, mean, I, I, I actually think he enjoys it. I mean, I say that. You know, he enjoys it. He's happy, but he's not at all, like, obsessed like I am about, like, you know, quitting my job after 10 years. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you some, some of the stuff later on, but it's, yeah. Well, the, the, but, but, to, but to your question, um, anybody, and I say this, Thoughtfully, I'm not trying to. I'm not. I'm not interested in being provocative for its own sake. I never have. I just try to say what I'm thinking and what makes sense, at least to me. I think anybody who does not look for his passion means that over his life he will not maximize his talent. Stop, everybody. So, well, no. Why should there be an exception? Why should? <laughs> why should person A achieve their potential? and person B make a choice that doesn't achieve his potential. So if you're asking me, in my ideal world, would both of those people uh, work to their passion and mm. achieve their potential? My answer is yes. I ask you to imagine, Mark, what the world would be like if everyone was operating at their potential. Like in my mind, we wouldn't live in paradise, but we live in a much, much better world than we, the one we live in now. Now, I, I believe that, so I, yeah. I res I know other people differ. Sure. I've had I've 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 had I've had parents at dinner parties severely criticize me <laughs> for suggesting that their pointy-headed kid should be pursuing his passion since he's living in the basement and they fear he will live there all his life yeah. with his wacko girlfriend to boot. Yeah, there's um I had a guest on the show recently called David Baker who is the, uh, he was the founding uh, managing, managing editor of Wired Magazine UK. And he's, a, he's, a, he's a teacher at the School of Life. And uh, we were talking about the future of work. And basically, just to give you kind of a, of a short version of the whole episode, is in the next 15 years, we're looking at AI and robots taking over pretty much every job, and that we'll be more focused on doing more um, 
works will, which will be more around humanity and bringing us together. I mean, that was that was kind of his his one of his bottom lines of his opinion. Well, it's 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 an old idea. One of the Greek philosophers that was got it. it. That's what he's talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, got it. Got it right. That when the looms weave themselves, then man will truly be free. Yeah, that's it. Um, so, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean we won't work. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. It'll, it'll just yeah, hundred percent. It, it, it just means that if you don't have to worry about money, if you get like a citizen's wage or something, then then you can focus on on the work that you want. Oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. You, let's, yeah. you sneak another idea in there. Like, oh, come on, come on. So, Larry, talk to me. So, what are your what are your thoughts on the citizen's you're, you're, wage? Well, you're talking to an economist, so like, <laughs> be mindful of that. Uh, well, my first comment is, you know, if you're talking about a sort of guaranteed uh, yeah. minimum yeah. Uh, minimum income, uh, certainly, it force in some circumstances that would be a useful social policy. There's no doubt about that. I, I could, you could easily think of examples in which that would be true. Uh, what isn't true? in my mind anyways, is the assumption that as AI or the robots take over the world, uh, most of us will be on a guaranteed income, presumably because we tax the robots <laughs> to, 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 to distribute the income. And of course, that's an interesting, Karl Marx, you know, Karl Marx is, I know he'll get out of his grave one of these days. He's buried securely because not going to stay there. Uh, well, no, th th there, there is, uh, you know, a reasonable argument to say that he was just simply too early. Mm. And that when the robots do all the work, uh, we'll tax the robots and the robots, you know, will use robotic production. And then we will, we will write poetry in the park. Um, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. no, no, no. That's a, that's closer to what some people are saying. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, I, and and please note here, uh, I am saying that sarcastically. That is not my forecast. I'm making yeah. fun of somebody else. I get that. Um, but the, but the truth is, there are serious social consequences of automation or robotics. So from my point of view, in terms of Again, you see, I, I have to deal with that, right? That's not hypothetical. Sure. If, if for the people who sit in these in, in, in my office, and I've had the same chairs for 30 years, so the chairs have good uh, <laughs> memory, faux memory. Uh, yes, they certainly do. I'm going to be buried with the chairs. <laughs> That's the deal. <laughs> That's the deal. But, but, but when I'm talking to someone right now, right, uh, and in the next 50 years, it's, it's a much different world. Well, I can't give them career advice as if those robots weren't coming. I know they're coming. You know they're coming. Mm. I can't, I have students who are working in AI. I, as an economics professor, am working uh, with students who are doing AI-oriented ventures. Mm. So I'm actually in the AI world. Now, how can I do that on one hand, uh, help implement AI, AI solutions? And I help, I've got several students who do robotic ventures, uh, successful ones already. Mm. So how how can I deny that reality and then talk to someone in my office and 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 give guidance as if this was 1950? It isn't. So so from my point of view, the idea that people should pursue their passion becomes more urgent because what's going to separate you from the machinery? Sure. Uh, well, a degree of excellence that only somebody who's passionate about their work could possibly deliver. So when the AI program comes along that does routine economic analysis. So what's your brother going to do? Sorry to pick on him. No, 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 no. I, I, yeah, I mean that you was. You put him. You put him in play. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why I am critiquing him? No, no, but yeah, and it was. Um, that was it. I mean the conversation. But I, yeah. but I say I, again. I say that seriously. 
um, they're tutorial robots. Um, I don't think I'll be replaced by a tutorial robot. You, you don't think you'll be replaced by a tutorial no. why, why is that? And I, that? That's not bravado because I will bring that extra ingredient that comes with passion. Huh. I don't think you program that into a piece of AI that a student would recognize. Um, because I'm still one of them. I'm not a machine. Yeah. So do you, do you, so not, think, do you not think that that's only a matter of time before they crack no. before they crack the emotion no. and, and well, creativity well, for AI? No, 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 no. Because the audience will still know the difference. Okay. Well, we'll we'll, we'll back on, we'll bank on that. Otherwise, well, yes. Otherwise, it's... you and I are both screwed. Well, <laughs> we are we are banking on that. I'll I'll admit that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but let's stay this side of science fiction AI. I'm talking about AI as it exists and the pathways of its development. Sure. Uh, and keep in mind the phrase artificial intelligence is a bit of a misnomer altogether since there's no credible definition of human intelligence. And therefore, how we'd recognize machine intelligence escapes me. Yeah. We mean something that mimics forms of learning. Basically, it should be called machine learning. That is descript much more descriptive. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and remember, the, uh, the AI programs as built now are all still limited by the old uh, garbage in, garbage out rule, which is uh, that you're only as good as the data they've been trained on. In other words, the AI programs, they learn, right? That's the point. So they're machines that learn. Mm. Uh, that is totally a function of how well they've been taught and what data was used to teach them. So I can make an AI program run amok, ask Microsoft with this little obscene spewing <clears throat> chatbot I can I, I, I can produce AI uh, devices that are horrific because they're training this the set of data they were trained on is flawed oh by the way someone in Britain who in who create who named the first first statement of information theory garbage in garbage out comes of course from my beloved Adam Smith hmm. the man was a genius like he was he was he will write the first book of social psychology called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which I hope your brother recognizes. Secondly, in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, he will discuss, provocative for his time, a very simple question. Why do, why do people do bad things? The answer in the 1700s was they're sinners. No, it was a religious <laughs> answer. They're either sinners or yeah. they're ethic ethically flawed. Sure. Uh, since or religion was already being challenged in the 1700s, but you were either, you know, a child of Satan and being evil, or, um, uh, you know, it, it, you, you just had no ethical standard. And Adam Smith said, no, most people do bad decisions because the information in their head is flawed, hmm. which is the garbage in, garbage out model. Yeah. Now, that's quite impressive for one person in an obscure part of the United Kingdom. Excuse me, to Edinburgh. <laughs> now, Edinburgh is one of my favorite cities. So, sure. I, I, yeah. I, it, so it is, seriously, one of my favorite cities because I and Adam Smith can walk together in the ghostly fog that still inflicts the city from time to time. <laughs> More than time to time, I'm sure. Um, so I, I, I'm going to get shot if I don't ask the, the following question, which is when you when you thought about designing your TED Talk and you and you were going to and you're going to share. Um, what went through your process? Like, what did you sort of think about? Okay, these here are all the different excuses I've heard over the years, and, and I'm going to use that small amount of time. I think you mentioned this at the beginning to just share all all those excuses. Um, and how was the process for you to do that? Well, it, it pretty close to what you just said. Um, I reviewed all the excuses, and they're really quite common. And there's only a limited number of them, so I didn't have a lot of 
since you have 15 minutes, that was about the right amount. Uh, I included all the excuses I really had heard, at least the most common ones I'd heard. Um, and the conclusion that I, will, I was already telling students, which is if, if you keep saying to yourself these things, you're not going to have a great career. I mean, I've already, I already was telling mm. them that. Right? Mm. So that's where the title came from. Yeah, that was just a, that was just that. In in some ways, that whole TED talk was practiced mm. in, in not as a not in in the whole, but each of those pieces were parts of conversations I had had sure. repeatedly already. Sure. So again, you see, sometimes things work because they're prepped. Mm. I know it sounds very boring, but no, no, I get prepped. that. And did you, were you, were you ex- did you expect the um, the reaction it was it was going it got did you, did you expect oh, that? Oh, never. Really? Never, 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 never. And I'm not falsely modest. Yeah. I'm quite impressed with myself. So, like not, <laughs> never, never, ne- never did I imagine that. Yeah. About a couple of thousand, just based on the student population of the university. I never imagined they would reach for yeah. And in many ways, it was very scary because the reaction came from around the world. Like every major country chimes in, Russia, India, China, Australia, hmm. New Zealand, Bosnia, countries I did, couldn't, I had to go go look them up because I didn't know exactly where they were. Um, and that that was demonstration, of course, of the scope of the TED, yeah. TED.com, of course. But uh, remarkable is such a huge range of persons, a large amount of uh, email from India, hmm. and if you wonder why India, then go look at the Bollywood movie Three Idiots. Okay, good to know. Which, I haven't seen it. Uh, Three Idiots referred to me. I teach at UW has an extremely uh, highly diverse student population. We draw our students from all over the world, uh, happily so, and um, so I have a large number of students of Indian descent. Uh, uh, Waterloo is a strong IT program, and of course, you know the Indian IT industry is quite large. Uh, so we have a lot of uh, students of Indian descent. And, you know, yeah, they, cha- they they re- they recommended the Bollywood movie, uh, which I'd seen Three Idiots <laughs> before I did the TED video, and it, you'll see why it. Okay. I got so much email from India. Yeah. By the way, I've been invited to all of India's institutes of technology oh, wow. to make a presentation there. Uh, all of them by student groups and never by the administration of the university. Yeah, and and, and have you thought about write a book? Write a book about about this this topic? Have you have you? Oh, of course, I have. I have. The book is No Fears, No Excuses: mm. What You Need to Do to Have a Great Career. Published uh, by uh, in Britain, uh, Random House Penguin. Ah, cool. Yeah, that's a good good publication. Oh, there's definitely a, there's yeah. definitely a book when, there. When did it When did it come out? Or when is it uh, coming spring, out? Uh, hardcover was spring 2016. Oh wow! Uh, hard, hard, the soft cover is. Uh, I just prepped the um, cover a couple Thank of weeks you. ago. Yeah, congratulations! That must uh, that must have been Thank pretty uh, pretty exciting. Um, oh, it, is, it 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 was, and it, it's it's been published around the it's been published in the United States and Canada, of course. Uh, Random House Penguin does the rest of the English speaking sure. world, yeah, including India, uh, and it's going to be during the next year published in um, uh, in translation in China, Brazil, and Spain, mm. Thailand, and Korea. Yeah, well, of course, South Korea. There's we're um and that and and, and people can get it on Amazon and all the typical kind oh, of oh of course yeah no, anyway we will buy books yeah okay and, so we we'll, we'll put the links at the bottom of the show notes underneath this the video and well, the podcast show notes 
I was just going to say the what ended up happening was all that email flowed to me. Yeah. And I and I try to answer it um, with great delays. <laughs> and when the public and of course the publishers chased me, you know, millions of TED views and publishers notice these things. And so my agent said, you know, there's a book here if you want to do it. By that stage of the game, since I'm busy doing things, um, the uh, I I noticed that I was actually writing the book in answering mm. the email. Wow! And that meant I actually knew what to put in the book. Yeah. Because all those people wanted more information than, sure. of course, could be could be rammed in a 15 minute um, uh, video. So then I simply elaborated the answer. Uh, and the book is based on the experiences of these conversations. Mm. So unlike other career books, he said archly, <laughs> my, my, my book, book is based, based on facts. <laughs> well, on thousands of conversations yeah, yeah, yeah. with real people pursuing mm. real careers. And to my utter amazement, I can't get rid of my students. So they talk to me. I think they're going to talk to me till I'm dead. Yeah. So... So in the space of a single couple of days, I'll talk to a student from 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and two minutes ago. Mm -hmm. It does mean, Mark, that they tell me what worked, what actually did work. Hmm. Because five years later, they're telling me what happened. Yeah. Or sometimes they'll tell me what happened in an interview after they got a piece of guidance. Hmm. Uh, so in that sense, there is evidence for every single comment in the book yeah because behind every piece of guidance are literally hundreds of individuals who practice that yeah or in some cases because the book says don't do these things yeah examples of people who did them and it didn't work sure so it's all not, it, the book's not you know, by the way the book's not cheerleading i don't <laughs> do i don't do cheerleading uh, it's it's like the video. Do this stuff for your toast. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's and uh, you know congratulations on the book and uh, it's it's Thank a you. great um, it's it's a great feat and um and and I, th and I think people should definitely go and check it out if it's if it's you know anything like this conversation tonight or even based on the different videos and interviews that I've seen you give over the years. Um, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's extraordinary. I know we've got a few more minutes left. Um, I had so many questions. Uh, and then I want to make sure I ask a couple of questions from the audience that submitted them before before today's uh, interview. Um, one of them is, and I know I just want to go really, really quickly, is that you've also been involved over the years with entrepreneurship, and you know some of them that actually we've all heard of, who I believe are the Research in Motion or I am the people behind the BlackBerry. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you've seen this. You, you've you've sat on this, I guess, on this frontier between careers, people pursuing their their passion and finding the careers they love, and also entrepreneurs. Um, to anyone listening to this who's, 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 who's at the edge of wanting to start something or go off on their entrepreneurial journey, what words of wisdom advice do you have for them? Well, a couple, again, based on, I've worked with now more than 500 startups, so that's thousands, because often they're partnerships, so that's thousands sure. of uh, individuals. And there are really two principles that separate those who do well from those who get stuck in a swamp somewhere or fail outright. The first thing is, there, whatever the company is doing, whatever its problem domain is, they have an inherent interest in it. 
So you can't just be passionate about being your own boss. You can't just be passionate about wanting to have your own business. You need to really want to do that. But you also need to be passionately interested in the thing you're actually going to create, the product, the technology, mm. or the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You need, in this case, a double barrel set of passions that you really, really, really want to build something on your own and that the thing you're building, whatever that is, that product or service, you really, really, really want that because you're fascinated by it. Um, and so, you know, still the passion argument. Sure. You haven't left that. Sure. And the second most important thing to do is solve an important problem. Uh, you know, biz books drive me crazy. They say to an aspiring business person, entrepreneur, uh, solve an important problem. Sorry, solve a problem. They never tell you to solve an important problem. So the students that I've had who have had extraordinary success always choose to solve important problems, and the solution is difficult. And they got to be patient and work like fiends to make it work because. <laughs> For an important problem that's unsolved, the solution is almost never easy to do. Hmm. But when you have it solved, you don't have a market problem. So one of my students, just for example, recently spent his whole undergraduate career here, which is five years, um, got his degree. While doing that, in parallel, he did all the research on his problem. So first know what the real problem is. Look at all the attempts to solve it and why they failed. You know, standard failure analysis. Then work on his own solution with the aid of his domain professors here, uh, which meant when he launched his venture on, venture on graduation, he has a 100% sorry, a 100% acquisition offer with a multi-million dollar evaluation and no revenue less than a year after he started hmm. and turned it down because he has alternative investors who will give him the same amount of money for a minority position. Yeah guess what he did and he is now all of like well he's kind of old now he's like 25 (laughs) and he is able to he has access to senior executives in a multi-billion dollar industry all around the world Hmm. everyone's happy to see him because he's got this amazing tech yeah yeah and and, but but you see in his case what he created he's passionate about and and that's he was he wanted his own business that's for sure the first time i saw him he was 17 but notwithstanding that i helped him understand how you got to care about whatever it is you're creating and though he picked something he really cares about he can read like for example when he's doing his research his homework it's actually not work (laughs) like he's reading about it because like this is so interesting yeah yeah so yeah it's like contagious almost absolutely and this passion for the result of your business not just for the business I have seen that and it doesn't matter if it's a service business doesn't matter if it's like hardware doesn't matter mm. if it's you know some new kind of business model it simply doesn't uh, doesn't matter if you aren't again think it, Mark doesn't it make sense see this all makes such perfect sense to me that, that like I feel odd saying it because I think I just told you the sun rises uh, <laughs> in the east Oh, no, no, it's what it feels like to me. But if you're going to have a great business, you have to create an innovation. 
you're not going to have a great business by doing something someone else is doing and just scraping some idea off the web. Even if you do it better? Even if there's someone's doing it, but they're just not doing it? Oh, oh, if they're doing it better, but then they have to find an innovative way to do it better. Right, okay. Oh, no, no. It, 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 oh, that, that's not that's a good business model, but the innovation still needs to be present. True. If you're going to do the same thing in the same way, Good luck. <laughs> and when I say luck, that's a, like I use luck as a curse word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and but like, doesn't that make sense? So if you're going to do an innovation, that takes a lot of work, concentration, energy, creativity, and maybe even a touch of inspiration. You're going to do this on something you don't find passionately interesting. Hmm. I do not think you could bring the focus of mind to it. Yeah. The intensity of 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 interest. It's and but, it's tough. It, it's a tough world out there. I mean, I think I think for yes. me, there's, I, you know, I openly talk about the hardship of the entrepreneurial journey. That's not, I think, spoken to enough. Where people make up, it's going to be this roller coaster of joy of just really happy. And it's it's tough out there. I mean, I, I get to speak to a lot of entrepreneurs. I get to go and speak at conferences and things. And um, for a lot of people, it's constantly yo-yoing between we're amazing to we're going to die, and we're amazing and we're going to die. And it's like this constant yo-yoing. Um, so I think you know what you're saying speaks true to you better be passionate about what you're doing it better be a meaningful problem that drives you every morning because it's tough absolutely. Ab- absolutely and and I tell them it's tough too I mean one of the things I point out is you know when they see me as, as they do great numbers well we start with all the obstacles yeah like the obstacles what are you going to do so so you have an idea uh, what's new about it uh, nothing can you pr- get a patent for it uh, no do you have a barrier to entry of any kind no uh, and this is a business how yeah sorry they, they, they every student who ends up in my office always gets a little sermonette <laughs> well, <laughs> especially the business on the entrepreneurs yeah which is uh, I'm taking what you're doing seriously so I shall be honest sure if you didn't want honesty tell you me now don't come here, yeah. and we'll have a very short conversation yeah so before we wrap up the interview, I've got a last few questions. And I just want to take this moment to say thank you. Thank you for inspiring not only 5.4 million people online who've watched your, your YouTube videos, but all the conversation that sparked from that video. And I'm sure your book is going far and wide. And it's just it's just amazing to see. I want to see like an adult figure. When I, what I mean by that is like an authority of, as, a, as a faculty member to speak about something that so many of us feel deep down which is is this normal that i'm feeling this way and so you normalize that feeling and that you call it forth so for that i want to say thank you um because it's a real gift i couldn't do otherwise so (laughs) so um i i have a couple of questions and i'm going to take a couple of questions from uh from audience uh first question is what does being unconventional mean to you it means well, for one thing, it means being innovative and creative and not following the herd. Mm. One of the greatest challenges that my students have on a daily basis is to break out of conventional thought, uh, cultural norms. Uh, a lot of my students go to or work in Silicon Valley in California. The culture there is uniform, it is powerful, it is unhelpful in many different ways. Mm and interferes with the independence of their mind. My job as their professor is to make sure I help them guard the independence of their own minds so they are not a creature of their culture, their background, or any or anything else. Mm-hmm. So I, I will counsel some of, uh, uh, some of my female students who are still afflicted with the idea that they walk one step behind their husbands hmm. or their boyfriends or whomever it is. 
and and I have to help them understand that they need to be unconventional. And unless they can, their talent will not be realized. And and sometimes we have to confront cultural norms. There is the old Chinese proverb, the nail that stands out gets hammered down. And I'm sorry, it's just mm. an offensive Chinese proverb. My Chinese is dreadful, so you have to <laughs> settle for the English version of it. Uh, uh, my students of Chinese descent recognize it. Mm. Recognize this as a proverb, as a piece of folklore advice. Yeah. And and from my vision, unconventional, or you'll not realize your talent, period. I love that. That's what it means to me. Yeah. Um, That's why I like your name. It's a good name. That's thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So I'm going to take a couple of questions from the audience, and then uh, I'll ask you my final question. So we have a question from Joey from London, who's asking, what made you want to seek the extraordinary? Joey, it... it you know, I'm, again, I'll answer honestly. I don't like being bored. <laughs> the extraordinary is always more interesting. Like, isn't isn't walking off a well-trod path? I'm sorry, that's old analogy, but that is what it means to me. I'm a farm kid. We had a 500-acre farm, uh, heavily treed. I don't want to walk on the same pathway for like a hundred years. I've walked on this farm. Hmm. You know, I walk on some familiar pathways, but the most interesting ones are when I and my family find things on the farm we've never seen before. That is just interesting. That's an extraordinary experience. Mm. When that happens, you feel like alive, intense. And Joey, if you've never felt the glory of something extraordinary, then go look for it. Mm. And by the way, but be careful. Once you taste that emotion of encountering the extraordinary you'll never go back to plain vanilla life again you'll be ruined <laughs> amen that is very true uh thank you here so, i just wrecked someone's life yeah, yeah, you got a couple more to wreck um tom is asking um do you believe that your past experiences your past actions define who you are today no, absolutely not. They help you find who you are tomorrow. So I'm a fan of using your past experiences. I'm sick of watching people who have rich experiences but never think about them, never absorb them, never draw any lessons from them. Mm. So most certainly your past does not define you. But the past you use to help build yourself. If you want to go in a different direction, it doesn't mean you repudiate your past. It means you mine it for all the lessons the past has and you, you and then you make a new 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 step um after all we do, when we're looking into the future we're planning our own personal futures you either do with evidence or without evidence hmm. if you don't use evidence you are rolling the dice with your life and i will curse you by saying good luck <laughs> if by if by contrast you want to use <clears throat> evidence then the only evidence you have is in your past and yes sometimes you look in somebody else's past because someone else's experiences may be useful to you but you're not starting from ground zero why would anybody act like you were a baby with nothing in your head yeah i love that so last question i've got uh, i've selected which is from a common friend olivier who says ask him if he sees himself as a life coach now <laughs> Which I'm going to guess is an inside joke. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm afraid it is. Um, Olivier, maybe, I'm not sure. <laughs> like, it, I just, 
I'm sorry, it's going to sound like such a cliche, but this <laughs> yeah. is what I'm actually thinking. Student comes into my office, I'm trying to be useful. An alumnus of the university contacts me, as they often do, I try to be useful. If a former student talks to me, I think I'll try to be useful. And I know I'm only trying. I'm not so arrogant as to believe I will always succeed at being useful. Mm. But that's what I'm trying to do. Just be useful. I think that's not a bad rule for life. Yeah. So maybe I'm a life coach. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll let him know. Larry, last question. Um, This is your very last um, lecture. The room is packed and students have flown in from far and wide. And it's your very, very last lecture. And you get to leave them with three truths that you've learned to be truer than true throughout your life that you want to leave them with, that you want to gift them with before you, you, you sidestep, what would the three truths be? Oh my goodness, that's a scary, that's a scary question, Mark. What would I tell them if I shouldn't add and you ask someone who's a manic lecturer to um, <laughs> uh, lecture to booth, to boot? Oh, well, I must admit, I do not really feel the need to be original. I'm trying to be mm. like, useful and correct about whatever guidance it is so I will stand with Shakespeare to thine own self be true and you can't be false to anyone else now to me to be true to yourself means you're try you're true to your passion hmm. so we're back to you should try to take yourself to the limit of your passion and at one level, I do not think life's philosophies are all that complicated. Have fun. Push your talent as hard as you can. And be helpful to other people. Hmm. What's complicated about that? <laughs> Seems to be blindingly obvious. Yeah. And then I would end, as I do end many lectures, go do it and have courage. Larry Smith, thank you so much. It's been an absolute honor to have you on the show. My pleasure, Mark. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's interview as much as I did. It was such an honor to speak to Larry. If you want to go and check out his book, make sure to look up for No Fears, No Excuses, What You Need to Do to Have a Great Career. You can also head over to youtube.com forward slash Mark LaRoost and the video interview of our actual interview will be posted there this Thursday. So if you want to get to see a look behind the scenes as to what was going on while we were doing our interview, make sure you head over there, give it a thumbs up and share it with a friend. If you enjoyed today's interview, you know what to do. Go over on iTunes, subscribe to the show. If this is your first time, we will welcome and make sure to leave a rating and a review. In the meantime, if you have any questions or you'd like us to cover any topic, make sure to send us a tweet over at Mark Roost. And while you're at it, Tweet me your favorite quote from today's episode. If you want to go and check out all the show notes, you know where they're at. They're markderoos.com and you can go and check out episode 61 and all the notes are there, resources, etc. Until next time, remember, it's not always easy, but it's definitely worth it. <laughs>